Amen. Several years ago, quite a media stir was created by doomsday prophet Harold Camping when he predicted that Jesus would return for his church on May the 21st, 2011. And those left behind would be plunged into great tribulation. Well, Camping's organization spent $100 million on billboards, warning people to sell their belongings, to prepare for the coming apocalypse. Of course, May the 21st, 2011 came and went. Jesus didn't return, and his church remained earthbound. Oh, but that didn't deter Harold Camping. His reaction was to recalibrate. Camping claimed that his math was off. The real date was October the 21st. But on October the 22nd, once again, Camping had been proven wrong. Actually, over the course of his ministry, Harold Camping set a date for the rapture on 13 separate occasions. He was an incurable date setter. As they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. But Harold Camping was 0 for 13. If the man proved anything, it was that he was a false prophet. Of course, when Camping did what he did succeed in doing was to provide fodder for the skeptics and the late-night talk show hosts. They mocked him and the idea of a rapture. Days after October 21st came and went, David Letterman had his top 10 Harold Camping excuses. Time Magazine named Camping one of its top 10 most popular costumes for Halloween. One blogger wrote, October 21st, day for jokes, not judgment. Sadly, all Christians end up with a black eye whenever some knucklehead sets a date for the rapture. Any biblically literate person should have known that Harold Camping was off his rocker in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. None other than Jesus, speaking of his coming, told his disciples, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus himself, while on earth, knew the exact day of his coming, of his return. Evidently, all the date setters presumed to know more than Jesus. I like the billboard that appeared right after the camping debacle. It read, That was awkward. Hey, before you talk about Jesus' return, why not listen to Jesus? The date Harold Camping should have been concerned about was December the 15th, 2013. For that's the day the man died and met Jesus face to face and had to answer for the deception he had orchestrated. That was quite a meeting. And yet Harold Camping wasn't the first person to predict a date for the rapture and the coming judgment. Church history is full of similar culprits. Tragically, you can go all the way back to the early church as far back as the second century AD to find ignorant people making the same kind of arrogant mistakes. You know, it's interesting how our text begins. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. You know, throughout Paul's letters, there are four subjects in which he encourages us not to be ignorant. Romans 11 verse 25 tells us that Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of God's plan for the Jews. Second, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 reads, Now concerning spiritual gifts, 
I do not want you to be ignorant. Third, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 exhorts us not to be ignorant of the role suffering plays in the believer's life. And then fourth, here, don't be ignorant of the rapture. Don't be ill-informed about God's plan for Israel, about spiritual gifts, about the redeeming role of suffering, and about the rapture. And yet 2,000 years later, there's more ignorance over those four doctrines than any others in the New Testament. That's why I've entitled my study tonight, What's Up with the Rapture? For despite the bad PR and the media's sacrilegious scoffing and all the other ridicule that's been heaped on this doctrine down through the centuries, it is still a real event spoken of in the Scripture. One day, Jesus is coming back to airlift His church from planet Earth. The key passages that deal with the rapture Include 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 3 and 4, Luke 17, John 14, Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. But the most direct teaching is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now when you study 1 Thessalonians, you'll notice that each of the chapters ends with a reference to the end of the age and the coming of the Lord Jesus. Even in the first century, at the time of its writing, this was a hot topic. And yet today, I talk to Christians who consider rapture watching a distraction. It's seen as a peripheral issue at best. At worst, an embarrassing hobby horse. But the believers in Thessalonica and in all the early church lived on the edge of their seats. They lived in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. The New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus more than it does creation or the triune nature of God or even the resurrection. We're given far more detail in Scripture on Jesus' second coming than we are on His first coming. The Christians of the early church lived as if they would not taste death. In John 14, Jesus says that He is the groom, that the church is the bride. Jesus left to prepare for her a place. And when he's finished, he has obligated himself to return for his bride and escort her into his chambers. New Testament believers rightly understood that they weren't looking for an undertaker. They were looking for the upper taker. And that's how God wants every generation of Christians to live. As if we could be the last. A part of following Jesus is being ready for his coming. Paul writes here in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now remember, Paul had spent just a few weeks in Thessalonica before his enemies had run him out of town. He must have taught them a cram course in Christianity. But there's only so much that a new believer can digest in a short period of time. There were vital strategic beliefs and doctrines that Paul had not developed. Thus, when he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, he inquires about the church's spiritual welfare. And Timothy brings him a report. He had detected some holes in their understanding of certain Bible doctrines. And according to chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's goal was to fill up what was lacking in their faith. 
And apparently, one of the deficiencies in their knowledge involved Jesus' return. Particularly, what happens to believers who die before he comes back? Notice two important truths here from verse 13. First, Paul speaks of the unbelieving pagan world of the first century as those who, quote, have no hope. The Roman belief in the afterlife was vague at best. The best scenario in the minds of the heathen masses was that death was a transport into the murky, shadowy, uncertain netherworld. Often a coin was placed in a deceased's mouth to supply ferry passage over the river Styx. As the poet wrote, Hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. But the missing ingredient in Greco-Roman religion became the linchpin of Christianity. Jesus' own resurrection spawned the belief in his followers that they also would be resurrected. And yet this idea of resurrecting the dead was foreign to a pagan mindset. For starters, the Greeks, they had a flawed view of the human body. They considered the body to be evil, a prison for the soul. Eternal bliss, according to Greek religion, was the spirit's escape from the body. Whereas Jesus dignified human anatomy. While on earth, God took for himself a human body. While among us, Jesus healed fevers and caused crippled legs to walk and fed hungry stomachs. He cared not only for people's souls, but for their bodies. For the Greeks and Romans, salvation was an escape from the body. But for Christians, salvation involved the resurrection of the body. Jesus defeated mankind's arch enemy death. The power of our living Lord Jesus eventually redeems everything that sin has spoiled, including these worn out, broken down bodies. The Greek philosophers were willing to concede the existence of a spirit world. But to overcome death in the real world was a miracle that they refused to believe. You remember in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill in Athens, the Greek philosophers were tracking with his sermon until he mentioned the resurrection. That was just too much for their Greek-Roman pragmatism. And yet this is Christianity's central claim, a bold miracle called resurrection. Notice the second significant truth from verse 13. Dead believers were said to have fallen asleep. Their flesh and blood body would one day rise again, but for the moment their body was taking a nap. This is how Jesus spoke of his friend Lazarus. Remember in John 11, verse 11, he said, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. At the time, Lazarus had been dead for four days. The New Testament uses the idiom of sleep for deceased believers. Their physiological consciousness is suspended temporarily as if they were asleep. Did you know the Latin word cemetery? It means dormitory or sleeping place. This is why bodies of Christian believers are buried to await the day when Jesus will resurrect us. The Christian tradition of burial highlights the dignity that Jesus bestowed on the human body and affirms our hope in our own resurrection. 
This is why I want to be buried when I die. My wife wants to cremate me and save the money. (laughs) On the other hand, I don't believe there's anything wrong or unbiblical with cremation. Kathy can save a few bucks, and so what? It's simply, cremation simply does in 20 minutes what nature accomplishes in 20 years. So I guess the end result's the same. We're still dust to dust. But understand, Christianity separated itself from the pagan world due to the tradition of burial. And it comes from our belief in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, even if you're cremated and your ashes are sprinkled over Stone Mountain or some other uh, favorite place, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will locate those molecules and resurrect your body. The bodies of all believers, cremated or not, are merely asleep. But what about our spirit? What happens to the spirit when the body dies? Does it sleep too? Does it fall into a kind of suspended animation? Some denominations teach this sort of doctrine. They call it soul sleep. But verse 14 gives us the answer to that question. Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. When Jesus returns, Paul says, He brings with him those whose bodies sleep in Jesus. That means that when a believer dies, their spirit leaves their body and enters heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, when Paul spoke of his impending death, he said that he would love to depart and be with Christ. This is what Paul calls death in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When I die, my spirit immediately exits my body and goes to be with Jesus. Instantly, my sorrow turns to joy. It's not my spirit that snoozes. It's my body. My spirit is alive in Christ. This means when Jesus returns, he's not coming for the spirits of those who died beforehand. They're in heaven. When he returns, he brings their spirits with him to rejoin their body that he resurrects at that time. Understand what the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the body meant to these early Christians. This was the moment, this was to be the moment of their vindication. They had walked by faith. They had trusted in a God who is invisible. They had turned down earthly pleasures for blessings that were intangible. They endured persecution for an eternal reward. They were strangers in their own hometowns because they longed for a land that was spiritual. And everybody thought they were crazy. Realize the return of Jesus was their opportunity to prove their sanity. When Jesus returns, everyone will see that what we had believed all along was true. It was to be the believer's moment of victory and vindication. And this was the question on the minds of the Thessalonians. If I die before the rapture, will I miss my day to shine? And Paul answers, absolutely not. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord 
will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, those who are alive at the rapture have no advantage over those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who died before the Lord's return, whose bodies are now asleep in the ground, they get a head start. They rise first. And why do the dead in Christ rise first? Well, it's simple. They got six feet further to go. Imagine all over the world, cemeteries vacated. Tombstones toppled over. Concrete vaults opened. Decomposed bodies will spring to life. Urns will empty. Try to envision this. Cremated ashes will rise up from the ground. The molecules will swirl together. And suddenly bodies will reassemble in midair. A metamorphosis will take place. A miracle of resurrection for the world to see. In that moment, every believer from every age will celebrate our victory day. And if this will be a thrill for the dead in Christ, imagine what this will be like for those believers who are alive on the earth at the time. I hope you know there is a generation of Christians who will never die. When the Lord returns, He'll snatch away those who belong to Him. Notice again verse 16. It's the rapture play-by-play. Paul tells us how it will happen. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Not going to send a representative. Not going to send his aide or his chauffeur to get us home or some Uber. The Lord himself is going to descend. According to John 14, Jesus left earth to prepare for us eternal digs. He has worked on it for 2,000 years. What a place it must be. He created this world in six days. Imagine what you can do, he can do in, six, in 2,000 years. Or 6,000 years, I'm sorry. What a place it must be. And he's going to return to bring us home. Well, second, Paul says that Jesus descends with a shout. The word translated shout is a military term. It means to bark an order. Like a drill sergeant barking at the troops. Or like a quarterback on the line of scrimmage. 898. Blue 45. Been a while since I've done that. Didn't think I could do that, did you? When the rapture occurs, Jesus is going to bark out the snap count. And on hut, every Christian's corpse is going to rise from the grave. Nobody's going to be off sides. Recall in John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus stood by Lazarus' tomb, and he shouted out, Lazarus, come forth. And it's been well noted, if Jesus had not specified Lazarus, every corpse in the graveyard would have sprung to its feet. Well, at the rapture, Jesus is going to leave off Lazarus, and he's going to command that the bodies of all the saints from all the ages 
He's going to command them to arise. And then third, we'll hear the voice of an archangel. Angels announced Jesus' first coming in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Apparently their shouts will ring out around the world when Jesus returns for his church. And I believe those voices will be audible. I'm expecting to know when the rapture occurs. I'm going to hear Jesus shout. And then I'm going to hear the voice of an archangel. Every year on the third Saturday in June, Spivey's Corner, North Carolina, they host the National Hollering Contest. People come from all over to see who can holler the loudest. Promoters of the event say hollering is the world's oldest form of communication. Well, on the day that Jesus returns for his church, he's going to win hands down. Suddenly, he's going to belt out a shout like a Marine. Hoorah! Or like a cowboy on a roundup. Yeah! Or like the way I used to call for my kids when it was time to eat and we wanted to get them out of the neighborhood. Hoo-doo-hoo! He's going to holler loud enough for everyone on earth to hear. And I personally think that this is going to be an emotional release for Jesus. That all his pent-up feelings are suddenly going to be vented. Understand this. The Savior loved you enough to die in your place. But he hasn't had a chance to tell you face to face. When he gets the order to come and fetch his bride... He's going to come hollering, hollering for you. Today, Christians are guided by the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But when we leave this world, we're going to go out with the shout, with the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet of God. In ancient times, trumpets were used to rally the troops, to assemble the community, to begin Special festivities, a trumpet blast even announced the arrival of a special dignitary. And all these functions will be in operation when the the rapture trumpet sounds. Every year, Jews celebrate the new year with the blast of a trumpet. The feast of Rosh Hashanah, or the feast of trumpets, begins when the priest blows the ram's horn or the shofar. In ancient times, it signaled to the workers in the field that it was time for them to lay down their tools, leave the harvest, and come up to the temple for worship. And this is exactly what the rapture means to us. When the trumpet of God sounds, Christianity's great harvest of souls will have ended. The church will enter the heavenly temple to worship Jesus forever. I didn't bring my ram's horn tonight. I did get a ram's horn when I was over in Israel. And usually when I teach, I blow the ram's horn, you know, but I never do it very good. And so tonight, I just want you to hear what a ram's horn is going to sound like. You remember that sound? You're going to hear it again. And God's a great shofar player. Hey, when we hear that blast, it's time to blast off. I'll never forget the night many years ago. We were meeting on Main Street in Stone Mountain in the old location. And I had just finished up a Bible study on on Bible prophecy. And we were waiting on the Lord in prayer. 
And in the distance, I heard a whistle. I thought, this is it. That's the trumpet. And I literally expected my feet to get light. Or my hands to start, to, to start dematerializing. That's actually kind of what I thought was happening. That's when I heard the rumbling of a train on the train tracks across the street. What a letdown. I was ready for liftoff. Instead, I got let down. But this is the anticipation that we need to always exhibit. Where every stray sound, where every unidentifiable noise causes us to think we're about to see Jesus. As Horatio Bonar once put it, each night as I draw the curtains, I look up at the night sky and say, perhaps tonight, Lord. And each morning when I see the dawning of a new day, I look out the window up at the sky and say, perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps tonight. Perhaps today. The Lord could come at any time. We should live in a state of constant expectancy. And notice what the Lord does when he returns. He doesn't descend to earth. The rapture is followed by great tribulation. The rebellious world will be judged for its unbelief. It's only at the end of this judgment that Jesus touches down on terra firma to reign and rule. No, at the rapture, he stops in the clouds. And at that time, Jesus will perform perhaps his greatest miracle. Verse 17 describes what happens. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word translated caught up is harpazo. Some skeptics like to point out that the word rapture isn't in your Bible. And it's not unless you're reading a Latin Bible. For in Latin, harpazo gets translated raptus. Harpazo means to snatch away or to seize violently. Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to snatch us up. We're going to be here one second and gone the next. Have you ever seen a hesitating yo-yo? One yank of your wrist and the yo-yo pops back up into your hand. Well, Jesus is going to return in the clouds and he's going to yank up all us yo-yos. He is. Or perhaps you've played jacks at some point in your life. You bounce a little rubber ball and you see how many jacks you can snatch up before the ball hits the ground. Jesus is going to play jacks one day. He's going to snatch up all the jacks and the jills and the sous and the sows. It'll be the invasion of the body snatcher. You know, I used to think that the rapture would be a slow liftoff. That we'd rise up a few inches off the ground and then we'd start navigating past treetops and birds and dodging airplanes and just kind of ascending through the clouds. But I no longer believe that's how it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Notice it all happens in the twinkling of an eye. We are transformed and snatched up in a nanosecond 
And how fast is a twinkle? You know, scientists compute the shutter speed of the human eye to be one-fiftieth of a second. And that's a blink. A blink's one-fiftieth of a second. A twinkle's even faster than a blink. And Jesus is going to transform us in a mere twinkle. The rapture's going to make the McDonald's drive through feel like eternity. Star Trek may have had it right. Beam me up, Jesus. We'll dematerialize and then reappear in heaven, inhabiting perfect, glorified bodies. Reminds me of the old country fellow. He lived way out on the farm, and one day he decided he and his family would visit the big city. Well, the old farmer, he dropped his wife off at the mall while he and his son went to the hotel to check in. Well, in the lobby of the hotel, he saw this huge metal box. He had no idea it was an elevator. But he was impressed by its size, and he wondered what in the world was its purpose. Well, soon an older female walked through the door into that box. The door shut behind her. A minute or so later, the doors opened again, and out walked a beautiful young blonde. Well, with a gleam in his eye, the old man, he turned to his son and shouted, Boy, you wait right here. I'm going to get your mother and run her through that thing. Well, at the rapture, all our bodies will be changed. We'll be the envy of the most skilled plastic surgeons. Our bodies will have an entirely new molecular structure. We'll be the same body in appearance, but we'll be new and transformed and uncontaminated by sin. No longer will our bodies be subject to disease or limited by time and space. Our bodies will have the capabilities Jesus had after he rose from the dead. We'll have a resurrection body like his. These corruptible bodies must put on incorruption. Think of the effect that the rapture will have on the world at large. In Matthew 24, verse 40 and 41, Jesus said, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Imagine Christians all over the world will vanish. A mass exodus of believers. The saints will split. A secretary goes on an errand and never comes back. Four people get into the elevator and only three step off. Eleven football players break the huddle and five finish the play. I heard of a youth group that staged a fake rapture to fool their unsuspecting leader. They were at camp, and the youth leader had gone into town to run a few errands. Well, when he returned, the place was vacated. Piles of clothes lay on the ground all over the camp, as if the folks wearing them had passed through. An empty motorboat was circling around the lake. An unattended dinner was all set up in the kitchen. And that's when a well-timed phone call added to the effect. The voice on the other end said, what's happening? Everybody's missing over here. The director later admitted, wow, it really shook me up. And one day, similar circumstances will be no joke. Think of the disasters that will be caused by unpiloted cars and trucks and planes. You know, I always chuckle when I see a car with the bumper sticker, warning, in cases of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. But it will be no laughing matter when the world is reeling from panic and mayhem and disaster. 
And I'm sure the scoffers will come up with all kinds of interesting explanations for all the missing people. It was an alien abduction. You can hear it now. And yet a lot of folks who've been warned will be forced to do some serious thinking. Here's a point that says it well. I think of times as the night draws near of an old house on a hill, of a yard all wide and grassy where the children played at will. When deep night at last came down, hushing the merry din, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? I wonder if when those shadows fall on the last short earthly day, when we say goodbye to the world outside, all tired of our childish play, when we meet the lover of our souls who died to save us from our sin, will we hear him ask, as our mother did, for all the children in? I believe that's what our Lord Jesus will ask as he returns for his church. He'll turn to the Father and he'll ask him, for all the children in? For afterward, the night will fall on this evil world. It's comforting to know that we'll spend that dark night in his house. I love the last line of verse 17. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. I can recall spending all day outside playing in the neighborhood, but there was something comforting about resting in my own house, in my own bed that night. This world is a weary, fearful, painful place. But always remember it's just temporary. Only our final destination is permanent. And Jesus called it paradise. I love the wonderful promise in Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 18 tells us, Therefore comfort one another with these words. You know, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. Terminology marks a turning point in God's prophetic plan. Apparently, there's a set number of Gentiles who come to Christ before God turns his attention again to Israel. And it's when the last Gentile enters God's family that the Lord will turn to his son and say, Go get them. Let's get all the children in. It always excites me to think that the last lone holdout could be right here tonight. If that's you, man, what in the world are you waiting on? You're holding up the party. What Jesus promises is far better than anything that this world could offer. Let me close by recalling two phrases from Paul's wording here in verse 15 that I think are important. Notice first, he writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, I don't know that he was always cognizant that he was penning sacred scripture. Remember, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 13. He said, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Troas. I imagine in Paul's mind, that desire was more motivated by the cold around him than by the spirit within him. It's reasonable that though Paul wrote under the inspiration of God's Spirit and often knew it, he wasn't always conscious of the fact, except here. For when he wrote of the rapture, he became adamant. He spoke by the word of the Lord. And my point is this. The return of Jesus and the rapture of the church 
are big deals to God. This is a doctrine that needs to be a big deal to us. Martin Luther once said, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. Today will matter more if we live it in light of that day. And notice the other statement that Paul makes in verse 15. He fully expects to participate in the rapture. He says that we, not you, not them, but we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Writing in the first half of the first century, Paul was fueled by the belief that that he was living in the last days. Paul counted on being a person who avoided death. You know, some folks might claim Paul was duped or that he played the fool. That couldn't be further from the truth. It was God's intention for Paul to live as if he were in the last days, just as it is God's desire for us to do the same. Harold Camping wasn't a false prophet for believing in the rapture or getting excited about it or even believing that he would experience it. He was unbiblical because he claimed to know more than Jesus and he set a date. To live a successful Christian life, we need to live every minute of every day in anticipation of the Lord's return. For see, this is the expectation that breeds godliness. I've met Christians who are apathetic. They're blasé about the rapture. As if they're afraid to get their hopes up. You better get your hopes up. Hope is what helps. 1 John 3 verse 3 speaks of seeing Jesus and concludes, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The rapture is a purifying hope. What if my mother-in-law told me that she was going to drop by my house sometime next Saturday? That would be awful. That'd be cruel and unusual punishment. I'd be thinking, wouldn't you give me an exact time so I could be ready for you? Don't just say sometime next Saturday. That's going to force me not only to clean the house, but to keep it spick and span all day long. The mere possibility of my mother-in-law showing up at any minute keeps me on my toes. And you see, knowing Jesus might return at any moment has the same cleansing effect on us. If I really believe Jesus could come back at any moment, I'll stay focused. I'll be ready. I'll avoid the shortcuts. I'll say no to temptation. I'll believe living in light of the Lord's return is crucial to any Christian spiritual growth. 30 years ago, Whenever my friends and I signed off, we'd always say, see you here, there, or in the air. The phrase reflected the expectancy that we all possessed. Our treasure was in heaven. Our hope was to see Jesus. Our dream was his presence. Then we got a mortgage. And we had some kids. We started paying college tuition. So you get caught up in the here and now, and you forget about the day you're going to get caught up in the clouds. Let's not lose our anticipation. Has our love for Jesus grown cold? Have all our friends been told? The next time you and I meet, it might really be in the air. Father, thank you. 